Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Hi, everyone. One of my treasured mentors was the father of emergency medicine, Dr. Peter Rosen. May his memory be a blessing. He edited and authored countless medical textbooks, journals, research, and various publications. He used to say that the publication that the medical world sorely needs is a journal of unpublished results. Everyone loves to publish their successes, but perhaps we may learn the most by publishing our failures. Dr. Rosen used to say in one of his many famous quotes, and I will use his colorful language since I generally do not curse, but he said, you learn the best from other people's fuck-ups. He meant learning from medical mistakes. I really took this teaching to heart and made it a lifelong approach in how I practice medicine and promote public health. When I analyze a medical bad outcome, I don't just look at how a doctor or a nurse screwed up. Typically, it's not the doctor or the nurse, but a failed system. When I evaluated the prescription opioid epidemic, I understood the root cause of the medical failure and had a roadmap to fix that failure. That is what drove me to want the job as chief medical officer at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. But that's a different story. Learning from F-ups. I think we can all relate to that. In the field of addiction, we can learn from the 20 million Americans in recovery who are living examples of the ability to overcome adversity. People in recovery have overcome challenges of addiction, but along the way, they also battled and overcame the challenge of broken relationships, lost jobs, mental and physical health, and more. What is the secret to overcoming adversity? We will be talking about resiliency in this episode of High Truths. The question for the day comes from a physician doing specialty training in emergency medicine, Dr. Jocelyn Young. Hi, Dr. Liv. My name is Jocelyn and I'm a High Truths fan. I'm an emergency medicine resident and I treat trauma patients. Some of my patients have had severe injuries that legitimately require opioids, and some of my patients may need opioids for a long time. How do people overcome a medically induced iatrogenic opioid addiction? Thank you so much, Dr. Young. To answer this thoughtful question, I invited a high truth expert in resiliency. Glenn Ignazio dreamed of becoming a pilot since he was four years old. His dream came true at 18 when he joined the Air Force and became a highly decorated combat rescue pilot. Glenn became known for translating complex technology into tactical operations. He conducted anti-pirating and counter-smuggling operations across the globe. He engaged in numerous combat rescues, including negotiating a hostage release of senior executives in the Middle East. After 22 years of living his dream and being a national hero, his life crashed. It literally crashed in a flight altitude chamber accident. He lost his health, his career, and to add fuel to his fire, he lost his wife in divorce and lost friends to suicide. And if that wasn't bad enough, 
he became addicted to opioids. Now Glenn is back with a story on how to recover and learn from failure. He has a lesson for all of us on resiliency. He calls it failing forward. Glenn Ignacio's bio and website link are available on the High Truth show notes. Glenn Ignacio, welcome to High Truths. And what an honor to have you on this podcast, High Truths. And I also want to really thank you for the service to the United States. Um, I have a shout out to Kimberly King, who's doing a great job promoting your uplifting message of resiliency. So thank you, Kim, for connecting us. And Glenn, I want to share a military bond. I am a very proud mother of two daughters who are in the Navy. And I told them about you being here with us on High Truths as an expert. And they're very interested in your story and the lessons you have both to the medical community and the public as well. Great. Well, thank you for the invitation. I, I think it's a, a privilege to be here and tell a story and help as many people out and uh, be, uh, again, raw and true to exactly what happened. So thank you and very flattered with your comments. So I appreciate it. So let's start um, the, with the question posed by Dr. Jocelyn Young. Dr. Young is an emergency physician who's asking, how do people overcome a medically induced that's mean caused by doctors in the medical community, iatrogenic, which means, again, same thing, caused by the medical community, opioid addiction, something that happened to you. Can you mm -hmm. explain your flight simulation accident and the injuries that you sustained? What happened? Yeah, sure. Actually, it's a... Um... It's an altitude chamber. So um, in the military as an Air Force pilot, every so many years we, we train uh, to be hypoxic, which means when you're up at a high altitude, you have a lack of oxygen. Well, something that can happen is uh, similar to the bends, which a scuba diver gets. If the scuba diver comes up too fast, the nitrogen bubbles form in the body. Well, that's going from high pressure to low. Same thing happens where we're at a very low pressure. So the best way to explain this is when you open a bottle of ginger ale, that pressure comes off and the bubbles form, you know, when you're, when you're looking at it. Well, the same thing happens with nitrogen in the bloodstream. So I was in an altitude chamber because uh, my mission we do, uh, we put, uh, you know, special forces individuals out the back of the aircraft at exceptionally high altitude. So we do this training every five years in this chamber. So we know what to do to respond to uh, something may happen at high altitude. So I got basically the bends. So these nitrogen bubbles got caught in the brain and the spinal cord. I lost some peripheral vision. Uh, the left side of the body is weaker than the right, but the most damaging part was the cartilage in the left part of my body and the hip was damaged. So it deteriorated at an accelerated rate until it was finally bone on bone. So the top of my femur and the entire hip had to be replaced. The first surgery uh, we thought went well, but it actually didn't. Uh, had the wrong prosthesis and it was off. It actually caused more damage. So one year later, I had to have it completely removed and redone. So from the beginning of the surgery, massive pain was actually vomiting from the pain through the surgery. Then that surgery didn't go well. So the pain was still elevated a year later before I could have the surgery done again and then post-surgery. So there was almost like 22 months of uh, high uh, opioid, opioid use. And that eventually got to 240 milligrams of pure oxycodone a oh. day. Yeah, because, you know, you take five milligrams and, 
maybe after a week, it's not working well because the body wants to manage itself. So then you got to go to 10, you know, a couple of weeks, then you go into 15. And I'm talking about massive pain that I literally would be vomiting if I wasn't on the painkillers. So taking that much and it's escalating to that, that incredible level, you know, after a week, I believe that the, that addiction hooks from such a powerful medication like oxycodone really gets you. But we're talking about 22 months of, of this. And uh, that was required and, and it was managed by doctors. And uh, that's, that's how we got to the point that I'm at or, or was at, excuse me. So recovered from that. Wow. Um, so ben, Ben's is called decompression sickness. And as you mentioned, yes. it happens in scuba divers, but also happens in pilots like yourself. Um, and those little bubbles can go anywhere. So if they go to your brain or spinal cord, uh, spinal cord, then you get a stroke, which is what happened to you. Something you said you were paralyzed. Yes. On one side. That's, the that's part I don't quite understand. To the how that how the decompression sickness caused um, problems with your hip. So the same thing, like the, the bubbles could get caught in the nerves, uh, the bubble the bubbles get caught in blood vessels. It gets caught in your veins, your arteries, and it can block off uh, the actual blood flow to those areas. So, I mean, you can die for this stuff. It can kill you. Uh, there's a variety of different symptoms from, oh, my elbow hurts to people are dead. And so the whole area to my left leg, uh, the blood was basically restricted. So there was uh, a reduction in blood flow. And that damaged uh, blood vessels and, and a variety of different things. So there wasn't an, uh, any uh, blood flow getting to that area. Fortunately, it didn't kill any that, bone. That uh, would be really like bad. Avascular. Have you heard that term that you had avascular necrosis to your hip because of that injury? So and, if, you're, you're the doctor, so this would really help out. Is, uh, so avascular necrosis, I'm correct, is you know, damage to the bone. And so uh, that didn't quite occur, but... Um, this is again into the technical, I'm not, not completely clear, but it basically damaged a lot of the soft tissue, uh, which uh, really impacted the cartilage and so forth. So what they basically said to me was that entire hip area, uh, it was like I had a, a hip of an 85 year old man. And so it just deteriorated and deteriorated. So um, it was a few years after the accident that the cartilage finally gave out. Yeah. Uh, so all the technicalities of how that worked, I wasn't quite sure, but uh, basically uh, the whole hip area was damaged. So um, it had to be replaced. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was the same size as your stroke symptoms, right? Yeah, exactly. So exactly. It's a great dream. It's, it's like a stroke, but without a bleed, you know, the, these bubbles get caught in the brain and they, they literally just block the blood flow. So yeah, the left side was weaker than the right. So um, you can notice it uh, a little bit if you pay attention. And I'm very lucky as I lost a little peripheral, peripheral vision in my, in my eyes, in my sight. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky I'm not blind, you know, wow. uh, but the entire left side of the body was, uh, was impacted. So um it's slower and it's, uh, it's not up to par as the right side. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a physician, the injury itself is, is, is interesting. And, and yeah. the treatment for that also, I don't know if they put you in a kind of a dive chamber to oxygen chamber to kind of undo that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, when we're in the altitude chamber, they're pulling pressure out to simulate high altitude. And, and a lot of people don't know that this can happen to aviator. In fact, 
you know, military aviators were, were used to being decompressed because of the way that we do certain missions. And it happens uh, approximately to 1% of all military aviators per year. Usually it's very minor, but it happens. And so a lot of people don't know that, you know, you can get the bends at high altitude. You know, they only know from, from scuba divers. And, uh, you know, this is, a, again, a, a routine that thing that we do. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a surprise that it actually happened. But um, the way that they, they fixed this is uh, they put me on 100% oxygen, which I guess uh, attaches and helps pull the nitrogen out of the body. Uh, we actually pre-breathe oxygen before this chamber ride to pull, pull as much nitrogen out before we go up, right? Should, should hopefully prevent it things happen. So afterwards, um, I was rushed to the hospital. This was at actually Travis Air Force Base in California. And they put me in a, a pressure chamber. I think it's called a hyperbaric chamber. And they dived me uh, to about 100 feet below the surface. And they put me on 100% oxygen. Now, the interesting thing is, at certain depths, oxygen can actually become toxic if you're on it too long. So I was like in a, um, not only was I in a pressurized chamber a hundred feet below the surface, but they had me in sort of like, almost like a, what you would see a pressure suit, like an astronaut wears. Uh, so they had me in that. And um, normally I would be breathing this mixed gas of like helium and some other things at that depth. And that depth, it squeezes the bubbles into small little form into liquid form and hopefully gets them out. And the oxygen, they would put a helmet on me about 10 minutes every hour to uh, pull the nitrogen out of the body. But because the nitrogen can be toxic at those depths, if you're on it a long time, every hour, it'd be 10 minutes on, take it off, another hour, 10 minutes on, take it off. And so the first hour or the first chamber uh, ride I was in for approximately 14 to 16 hours, they gave me a three hour break. And then I was back in for 12 hours, again, 10 hours. So I was in the hospital for about uh, three days. So uh, yeah, so they, they try to squeeze the bubbles down and they try to use oxygen to get it out of the body to, to help you recover. So like lengthy technical answer, but uh, yeah, hopefully I no, explained it as I, best as I can. When I was in my residency um, in emergency medicine as part of the training, they took us down into a dive chamber to, to yeah. see what it's like. And some emergency physicians, I bet the ones who were treating you became, um, you know, uh, did specialties in um, yeah. hyperbarics medicine. Yeah. These were all Air Force flight surgeons uh, that specialize in pressure injuries. Uh, that were running this chamber at Travis. They're fantastic people at Travis Air Force Base. And so they they basically saved me and tried to minimize as much damage as they could. But um, yeah, it's a very interesting science. Now, so you had a horrible accident and that's just the beginning of, of, <laughs> yeah. of the, the, the road of what happened to you. I mean, going in the dive chamber, that was easy. What, what was hard is all um the pain that you suffered yeah. and do you agree that you became addicted to opioids absolutely absolutely i mean you know outside of just the medical stuff you know because of this injury my military career was over i mean that's all i did since i was 17 years old it's all i wanted to be was a pilot so you you have a psychological impact that your military career is is over in a snap of a finger and you have that, that mental stress. Um, you know, I've had numerous deployments and there's certain stresses with the post-traumatic, but, uh, you know, physically, once you have these surgeries and the pain and you're on this oxycodone for so long, uh, 
you're addicted. Uh, you can use any term you want, reliant or habitual, whatever it is, you're addicted. And uh, the body and the brain just craves it uh, regardless. And when, when you just said that you were throwing up from the pain, I'm thinking you were throwing up because you were withdrawing because you didn't get enough of what you're used to having. Yeah, the, actually, the, the pain that I was uh, discussing was actually the pain was, was so bad from the injury when I finally went bone on bone. So I was trying to deal with the pain because I've never been on any narcotic or drugs or anything because my career was in the military, you know. And so I tried to deal with it, tried to deal with it. And again, this is right before the surgeries. So the pain was unbelievable. And finally, it was to the point I was fighting. I didn't want to take painkillers, but I pretty much was forced to. I, I, was, I wasn't functionable. You know, I wasn't functioning because of the pain. But after I was on the pain uh, killers and you know, the opiates, um, sure, it helped out. I stopped, you know, vomiting for the pain, like I said, that intense. But after 22 months or so, um, you know, with the help of Stanford University and the medical doctors there, we started weaning off of it. And as we started weaning off of it, you feel lethargic and, you know, feel so hot every time you step down. But finally, I think we were down to about 10 milligrams. So you went from 10, 240 to 10 over, I think it was over like a month and a half or so. Oh, that's And bad. then, you know, then it's, then it's just cut. And when it's cut, um, you go into full withdrawals, just like, uh, I mean, you see pictures, you see videos, you see TV shows about addiction and people on heroin and so forth. You go through the same withdrawals. Yeah that those individuals do. So even though it was medically monitored, uh, you know, or monitored by doctors, you go through the whole thing. And that wow. was living hell. That, that sounds really miserable, Glenn. I don't think we do mm. that any now. And we're talking in 2021. I don't think we do that anymore. What year was this? Uh, this was, uh, let me see. I think I was completely off in, uh, I know he's going to ask, I pulled a, uh, uh, I would say 2017. Yeah, 2017 sounds right. So that's when I was completely so that, uh, off 100%. That sounds really drastic, um, going from 240 milligrams to 10 in a month and a half. I think that's not the recommendations now that we're doing as much like slower. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, the other thing is, looking uh, you back know, at, Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say is, you know, the, the thing is, is when you're on the opiates, you know, you know, everything slows down. You're really out of it. And, you know, it could have been two months, you know, I'm trying to recall it now. But, you know, it, it was a fairly quick time where, you know, trying to step down 10 to 20 milligrams per week. And at the other upper dose, it's not so bad. But when you get lower, you know, think of the percentage. You know, if you drop, um, you know, you drop 10 milligrams when you're on 20, that's 50% drop. That's a huge impact to the body. So as we got lower, instead of dropping, say, 10 milligrams at a time, then we'd cut it back to five or, you know, and try to try to come down slower. So that that percentage yeah. is a key factor for how much you're going to feel. But every time you step down, you, you feel lethargic. You don't feel good. You're sleeping in almost all day. Um, you don't get as sick or anything as the 100 percent withdrawal when you're completely done. But you're not feeling well through this whole process. Um, and then when you're completely, uh, end it, I think we cut it at 10 milligrams. I was so frustrated. I'm like, listen, I just want to stop. And when I just stopped, um, after two years of this full blown withdrawals, just like anybody else. Did, did anyone give you buprenorphine to help with the withdrawal, especially towards the end there? So, um, 
not towards the end. So this is a, again, an interesting thing. I learned so much about this. So sure enough, went through the withdrawals and I have no problem getting into the details of, you know, you're, you're vomiting. You don't even know when you need to go to the bathroom. I mean, it's, it's crazy. We can step into that, but it was interesting was, um, so, um, I'm, I know the months clearly. So I'm just trying to make, so I think it was like May, June was when I was completely off the opiates and something interesting was starting to happen was I'm completely off of them. And first of all, things are very enhanced. So if I got a paper cut, it felt like your arm was amputated. So, you know, your, your feelings have been so suppressed that the, the smallest amount of pain is completely exaggerated. Yeah. That's called uh, hyperalgesia. You know, I'm not seeing that with patients. I would barely put the stethoscope on their chest and they'd be screaming out. Oh, it was amazing. And, you know, my, my career, it's pretty physically demanding. So I, I think I have a halfway decent pay tolerance, but I was just like, oh my God. The other interesting part uh, was, again, you know, I, I had uh, been diagnosed with uh, PTSD for some experiences I had in the intelligence and military world. And uh, within the first I would say three to five days, I actually had a very vivid, you know, dream or flashback. Uh, and it was so vivid and clear. It was freaky as if you're practically reliving it. And so when I woke up, I was, it, this was during the night, uh, it, it was boggling. I thought I actually just relived something. So that was interesting. And it, and it was a new note for some of the doctors I was working with. Uh, so uh, that happened. But uh, the point to get into is so you know, I get through the the whole nightmare of the withdrawals that lasted more than you know a week to two weeks, and I felt like felt halfway decent. I started working out, trying to get to the gym, trying to get in shape. You know, and when you work out, you know, you get a little sore from lifting weights or something again. And as soon as you feel pain like that, immediately there's a craving. Right. So the, the, the VA and others helped me and, the, and Stanford helped me, you know, psychologically know what was going to happen. So you get that craving, fight the craving off. Right. No biggie. But the next morning I would wake up and again, felt lethargic, uh, felt sick, like I had the flu, didn't want to get out of bed. So it was almost like withdrawal light. Right. Mm-hmm. And that would last for almost a week. And then I'd be okay, try to work out again. And so it's like, I'd have two or three weeks good. I'd have a week of this, this crappy feeling like a light withdrawal. And what I learned um, as I went from July to February of dealing with this, I was going nuts. And I went to the VA for help going, what is going on? And uh, I was told I had post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So pause, I believe is the term. And it's basically the brain was so saturated and it's looking for the opiate. Uh, so they gave me a little bit of uh, Suboxone. Uh, so I, I looked horrible. It was one of those low times. And they gave me four milligrams, not much of a change, which is the buprenorphine. Brup- I have trouble spell, uh, pronouncing that. But they gave me about four milligrams, not much happened. And they waited about 30 minutes and they gave me another four. And I was like, wow, I sort of feel good. And, and I went into the restroom and I looked in the mirror and I remember I looked gray skin. Just looked, I looked horrible. And I went to the bathroom and I looked normal again. It was like the color was back in my face. I looked normal. I felt normal. Yeah. Colors were more vivid. It was as if somebody took a squeegee and cleaned a dirty window. And now I could see clearly. And that was the impact of the Suboxone or, or Burpernophine. <laughs> How did she use the expression? That's what the impact was. So the, the brain was sort of uh, just being suppressed. It was just enough to to ease the pain of what the brain was looking for. And uh, that really helped out. And that, I was on that for, 
um, a few years. Description because I've seen I've seen patients who are you know medical patients with horrible you know osteoporosis, multiple surgeries, and terrible pain. And as they're getting weaned on their medicines, they they feel horrible. End up in the emergency department. And I've I've tried buprenorphine, and it and it kind of it eases just like you described. So that's, that's nice. Um, yeah. Do you feel looking back at your experience um, and do you feel there was an emotional aspect to your pain where you got up to 240 milligrams? I mean, you were going like, you know, you lost the thing that you loved most in your life, your career and being a pilot. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I could, I could see you're still sad about that. Um, oh yeah, it, it it sucks. It is what I love doing, but yeah, yeah. You know, so, I mean, that's her. And then you went. You mentioned going through a divorce. You know, another love that you lost. That makes pain worse. Do you, yeah. did you feel that that was a component? Now, kind of looking back, you when you're in the thick of it, you just think about, oh, my hip hurts. I need more. I need more. I need more. But looking back, do you feel like there was an emotional component to things? Yeah, it was an interesting mindset. Um, you know, the divorce actually happened after, um, you know, I got off the, the, uh, the medication, but Hey, you know, the pain meds and that whole experience could have you know caused some impact. I, I don't, I don't doubt it at all. Uh, but the interesting part was <clears throat> again, because of the career in the military, you know, pain tolerance, you know, injuries just sort of deal with, it's like, you're not thinking about it, but I'm sure there's pain in the body from injuries that have happened over the years, right? So this is what I thought was really interesting. So when I just started out, you know, you're taking five, 10 milligrams, whatever. And they said, oh, you know, you might be groggy, lethargic. Exactly the opposite. I had energy. I was so efficient in working everything. And I'm like, what's going on? And so what basically happened is, you know, with all these injuries to, you know, the back, the shoulders, the knees, whatever that you're normally dealing with, the pain medication got rid of all that pain that you normally deal with. And then psychologically, all the things like, you know, the, uh, the stresses you're underneath or, or anything like from the trauma and so forth, you're normally carrying all of that was, was sort of suppressed. So any, any aches and pains I ever had over the years, was suppressed and psychologically it was like there was no stress so for the first few weeks you know when we're at the five to ten i was actually really i was feeling good it was very efficient it was really weird but that's just because of maybe my pain tolerance in the beginning but as we started increasing that changed uh i do remember through the whole thing i was like being on the pain meds especially in the beginning was sort of like the best i've ever felt because the pain was gone. It was like the psychologically, any stressors or pain was suppressed and it felt good. As I went along, um, I realized that after a few weeks, you know, your body's getting used to those opiates at say 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, whatever that then I'd start feeling the pain coming up again, again, again. And as we got into the higher doses, like when I got up to, and I'm trying to remember exactly what the dose is. Maybe I was at 80 or hundred milligrams and it wasn't working. And I was trying to, I was trying to, to, to really stomach it out. I was trying to deal with it. And I actually went into the doctor uh, with my spouse at the time. And I was really upset saying it's starting to not work again. And I think we have to go up. And I was really upset and fighting going up on the medication again, really upset. But 
there was really no choice because the pain was just becoming incapacitating again. And so that's the point where we started escalating to 240. And when we got to 240, I'm like, this number just is outrageous. And I said, forget, I'm not going to take anything more. And that was the cap. Can I ask uh, you, but, who got you up to 240 milligrams? Was that what kind um, of that a primary care doctor or the orthopedic doctor or? Um, I had an orthopedic doctor and a primary care doctor and the primary care doctor was, uh, was basically, you know, treating me and managing me for that pain. And, um, she was pretty forthright. We both talked about, she's like, look, you're going to have to get into a program and a specialist with, uh, you know, these pain meds to get off of it just because the, how long you've been on it and the dose. And so that was, you know, that was nice where it wasn't a doctor just pushing and pushing and pushing. And she let me know that we're at at a a duration and at a level that you're going to have to deal with a specialist to get off of this stuff. And so I was aware of that and, um, but continued because of, of the risk. Do you, do you feel that you were overprescribed? I mean, 240 milligrams, the, you know, at 50 milligrams, we recommend people to carry naloxone. Um, the CDC guidelines is like 90 milligrams. Yep. You were at 240. That's a yeah, lot. Yeah. So yeah, do they, you, they, uh, you, they gave me the naloxone. Like um, you know, I thought about that, but in all honesty, when I would stop, you know, and I looked at it like, you know, are you addicted to just the feeling and everything? And, and I remember very clearly going through it and, and back, I was really against pain meds. I really was trying to fight it. Uh, but when I stopped and it was progressing and progressing, the pain came on and it came on intensely. And I think about it going, well, geez, you know, the pain's being suppressed by these, these opiates. And then I'm starting to feel it. So is it enhanced because of the drugs? I, I mean, you can look back on it and wonder, is the pain enhanced because I've been on painkillers and it's just starting to break through. But I remember is that the pain was really intense before we, we stepped up and mentally I was actually trying to avoid it. But eventually when you're at 240 and stuff, you're just going with the flow because you're just sort of like a machine at that point. You're really, you're really sort of out of it. People who have a, a, a hip replacement surgery, they don't need that many. Opiates. No, but not I at think all. What happened with you is it didn't fit, right? You had the, the pain yeah. before the surgery, the surgery, the hardware didn't fit right. So then you had to do with that pain. And then, and by that time you're, you know. Yeah. yeah. So so like immediately, you know, being bone on bone and having the hip replacement, it felt good. So we're sort of coming down. Right. Yeah. But it was about, a, I would say about four weeks later, what happened was it was also off angles was literally shredding, you know, the, the psoas muscles and tendons and everything from the bottom up. Think of it that way. Right. So yeah. it was wearing on these tendons and muscles and just literally shredding them because it was like sticking up and these, these tissues are just rubbing off of them. So after a month, as I thought we were coming down, the pain started going up again from pain induced from the first surgery. So, so instead of, you know, I thought we would drop right off. It was sort of like it came down a little bit and then it spiked. And so it was pretty intense and, and actually it was pain in a, in a, in a different way, not just from bone. This was now from soft tissue and, and other things. So, um, yeah. And, and I remember is that it really hurt. And so when I got to 240, I was sitting there going, my God, this is so much. What is, and, and I remember saying that and uh, the doctor and uh, the nurses and so forth were there. And they said, honestly, there's people that are actually on a lot more. And a lot of times they'll transition from 
say, oxycodone pills to uh, morphine or something that's stronger, melodic. I can't remember what exactly, but um, there were people that were on more and even more intense um, medications. So I thought that was surprising. But yeah, I, I knew it was at a high level, a very high level. <clears throat> now, going through this, did you experience stigma from the medical community of somebody who needs so much pain medications? No, no, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, clear my throat here. Um, actually, no, because of the situation, I was very clear about what was going on with me. Um, they knew what was going on with me. I mean, there was medical tests, x-rays, MRIs showing all this damage. <clears throat> Apologies. Uh, so I didn't get any stigma from that. So he, here's the worst part is when I, when I got off the, the, the pain meds and went through that whole nightmare, and I can tell you what happened with the withdrawals. But once I started getting that post-acute withdrawal syndrome, so, you know, you have two weeks good and then a week of feeling like crap, my closest friends, even my spouse started thinking, are you back on the medication? Now they knew I didn't get prescription and they knew I wasn't getting prescriptions, but they were like, you know, are you, are you back on opiates? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't know what's going on. And like I said, I went six to eight months and I was losing my mind of experiencing this. But the worst part psychologically that was crushing was, you know, your, your friends and some close family don't believe you and think you're actually back on something. So you got and you're, from family and friends. Oh, that, that was the hardest because it's like, look, I understand that, you know, how powerful these pain meds are and, and people do turn to things. And I, I mean, I helped mentor some people in the VA when I went there. Um, but I didn't turn to anything recreationally and I didn't turn to, I didn't go back to it or anything, but people believing or thinking that you are and looking at you like, yeah, you know, you're starting to use it. And then that made people, I, I felt like people are starting to look at you like, Oh, you know, you're a druggie, you're an addict. So it went from physical or excuse me, went from a, a, um, a medical to all of a sudden, Oh, you know, he's just hooked on drugs. Uh, at least that's how I felt. And that was the crappiest psychologically damaging thing uh, because it wasn't true in my mind. And uh, you couldn't, no matter what you did, you, you couldn't improve yourself. Uh, they, they always had these doubts. Right. So you, you were, you did face stigma from, from other yeah. people. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> now that you're doing well, what's your advice and how do you overcome medically induced? It's from the medical community, you had an injury, uh, iatrogenic. It's you know, it's it, it, the it's you did not have a natural addiction. This was caused by a medical event, but you right. an opioid addiction. How do you overcome that? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's really the the mindset. You know, I mean, the mindset and and one thing that I I remember clearly was you know, especially afterwards, like you're on these opiates. And you're not really functional. You're out of it. Um, you're sick and, and you're hooked. <clears throat> so your life is, is completely closed down. I mean, you know, I couldn't work. I, I did international business. I, I couldn't travel. I was on these pain meds. You know, it was, it was, it was eventually it just got horrific and the withdrawals were horrific. So somebody at the VA, when I went through the program there, you know, to, to help out, they said, you know, do the what if. And it's a never ending. What if, okay, so say, say you're fine and you're off it now, but you want to take an opiate again, but what if you do? Well, the pain might be gone. Yeah. But how does it affect your body? Well, 
you're probably going to be suppressed again. So your emotions and your activity is going to be lower. And then, well, then the potential of being addicted again is going to occur. And then, well, I probably would not be able to function and work very well. And then my family will probably be upset that I'm back on these pain medications. And, and then, and so there's, and then, and then, and then it's never ending and it's all negative. So if you have the mindset of, oh man, if I take an opiate and I'll feel better again, yeah, that's about this much. But if you're going to say, okay, that's good. Let's look at what's bad. And it's like, and then, and then, and then, and then all the bad things will completely overwhelm it. And if you have a mindset and you have the frame of mind to at least think fairly clearly, you can talk yourself out of it. And the, also the biggest thing is being completely open and telling people, look at, I, I need help with this. I don't know what's going on, but I'm, I'm hooked on this or I'm getting hooked on this and telling people and being open with people is extremely, extremely critical. So I don't think you can do this by yourself. You know, I wonder how people do it on the streets. They're hooked on heroin. I really don't know how they do it. But I notice is the first step is being committed that you don't want to live that life. Think about everything you're doing before. I was very active. I was an active cycler. I was doing all these things. I, I traveled internationally doing business and, and some things that really were, were intellectually uh, you know, stimulating. And they were gone because I was on these drugs. So if you think about what you want to do and how happy you were, okay, let's take a look at the small victories, which I like pitching. When, when was the last time you were happy doing something and not making excuses like, well, yeah, I got injured. Yeah. So what? Okay. Let's heal from that. But the pain meds have impacted your life. So you're not able to function. Okay. Well, commit to getting off of these things, commit to getting help and being open and obvious. I think that's one of the biggest steps you have to do. And it's literally taking small steps. If you're going to go and quit cold from 40 milligrams, 30 milligrams, or 200 milligrams, and you go cold, you're going to be in hell. And I don't think you can do it. You got to step down. And there are plenty of programs out there, either with uh, the medical folks or even people that are hooked on uh, heroin and hard drugs from a recreational perspective. There's many programs out there. Just get the help. But you have to really commit to that and you have to be um, open-minded to take it step-by-step step and not just quit cold. Get, get it and do it right. So we, we know um, the science now shows that people who take opioids consistently, even within two weeks, 100% of people get addicted. So we know that that happens. And really kudos to the VA. The VA is really a role model in, in treating addiction to opioids, benzodiazepines, uh, having protocols, programs um, that help our, our veterans that, that deserve that great care. So I'm glad to hear that you got good care at the at VA. And, and when I learn protocols of, of how to, to treat <clears throat> that, I, I go to them as a, as a resource. That's great. And, and honestly, that was one of the things that, you know, for me to be on the Suboxone, which actually was managed by the VA this time, um, I had to go through the program to learn these things. And, and that's what was great was this mindfulness. You know, mindfulness is a big thing. At first, I was like, oh, you know, it's this lofty thing coming from the military. But, but I actually realized this is like, man, it's this wonderful. is actually pretty cool. You know, it's like, why am I stressed about tomorrow? I got to be 
focused on what's going on today. So if I'm thinking about what I got to do tomorrow, I'm not here today, right? You know, that, that power of now, you know, there's a lot of books about that, but it, it's actually true. And so that helps out with the here and now, of what am I going to do right now? I want to be off opiates. Okay. Yeah. But you're on 80, hundred milligrams. It ain't going to happen immediately. So right now I'll focus on getting off of five milligrams. Okay. That's a great accomplishment. I did something next week. It's five. I accomplished something, set those goals and those objectives. That's what I mean. The interesting part though, uh, sorry, I jump around here, but getting into the program with the VA. So, so I'm in this program and um, this was my aha moment about helping people and uh, was helping mentoring some people. So I'm, I'm in this, this group, you know, uh, round table and there's people in there that are you know, alcoholics, people that are on meth, people on heroin or people even situations like mine. And the interesting part is like once a week, I think it was on a Wednesday, somebody would tell their story. So after a few weeks of being there, I start telling my story and everybody's like, oh, wait, a couple of guys were like, oh, well, wait a minute, you're, you're not part of the staff. I'm like, no, I mean, I'm one of you guys, what the heck's going on? And I was just sort of quiet observing and participating. And they're like, I thought you were part of the staff. I'm like, no. And then I said, uh, I, I, most of the folks were enlisted. So I was the only officer, was the only pilot and what I remember there was a gentleman, uh, it was special forces army. And I think, uh, he had a major injury. I think he had an amputation and he was on major pain meds, but when his pain meds, they cut him off, they cut him off cold and he was going through hell. And unfortunately somebody offered it to him or whatever, but they offered him heroin. He got hooked on heroin and he put himself down so badly. You know, the, the biggest enemy is your own mind. I think against yourself and he put himself down so bad. And then he's like, wait a minute, you're, you're an officer and you're a pilot and you were addicted to opiates too. Okay. Yeah. Not, not heroin or everything, but who cares? And I was like, yeah, dude, this happens to anybody. It can happen to lawyers, can happen to doctors. This, this doesn't care what color, what, the, what demographic, what your income is. This happens to anybody. And just the idea of who I was, just the idea that I was an officer and a pilot, I mean, I didn't care what, for that individual, it was like, oh my God. And, and it was like, you could see him. It was like this heavy weight on him and just his posture were like, oh, this, this just defeated individual sort of like opened up like, really? And it was just that, that much of, of taking that pain or that stigma that he created for himself away just helped him. And I'm like, shit, if I could just tell my story and it helps somebody like that, I'm going to open up and tell them all. And, and that was my aha. And that was the significance that I thought of being open and sharing with people. And uh, I don't even know if people understand exactly how cruel the withdrawals can be, you know, but I well, thought it was great to do. What I think is remarkable is when I have patients who have medically induced opioid addiction, they don't want to associate themselves with people who are addicted to, to heroin. And, <laughs> and you were openly sitting in the same room, getting the same treatment as them because it's really the same yeah. disease and yeah. uh, you were able to let go of your ego even though you were an officer yeah. combat pilot to sit in the room with other people who are addicted to methamphetamine and get the same treatment so that's yeah and that, and that was the interesting part is that the VA they're like I think you're like the first officer we've had in ages or that they could remember and the first pilot and everything they're like really you know and and I mean I don't know if they get treatment somewhere else or whatever but they were like yeah and so the significance of being there so that's where i was like i started mentoring people 
you know, I was getting the mindset and understanding and very driven, very disciplined that I didn't want to be on these things, but just trying to help somebody. And so, like I said, is it wasn't my ego of, oh, I'm an officer, I'm a pilot. It had nothing to do with that. It was the idea that, okay, yeah, that's what I am, but hey, I'm here as one of you guys. I'm the wow. same thing. There's no difference. So who cares if you guys stuck on, on heroin or if you had the same situation as me? I don't care. You're stuck in opiates. That's all that matters. I, I love that part of your story because it's the same disease process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think the best weapon against the enemy is their own mind. Well, the best weapon you can create for yourself is your own thoughts. And I think that's what the biggest obstacles I saw with people and that defeatism, uh, I think is one of the things that's a a death spiral for people is that defeatism is I'm never going to get off of this. I'm never going to do this. I'm never. And, and that never doesn't exist. You can get off of them. I don't care if you've been on them for a decade or five years. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge, but you can get off of them. And you're going to have to fight it for, for a very long time. But, um, you know, I, I fortunately consciously don't have any cravings, you know. Uh, and if I do or anything pops into my head, um, I'm very conscious of fighting that off. Uh, so, yeah, is it painful still? Yeah, it's painful. It sucks. And my life's not the same as it is, but it's not as bad as it could be. So I look at, again, what I have, not that what I don't have. And I'm happy with what I have. And you talk about failing forward, using failures yeah. that we've all had all our lives to move forward. And I've mentioned my mentor, Dr. Peter Rosen, known as the father of emergency medicine. He used to say, you learn most from other people's failures, although he used a different F word. Um, and so you suffered <laughs> accident. And, but it wasn't your fault. You know, it was a failure, an accident. I don't know if it's a failure, but it wasn't your fault. And people who have an addiction also end up with a condition that's not their fault. So I'm wondering, can you fail forward without blaming yourself? I think that's the, I think that's, that's one of the major lessons that I would say about failing forward that I tell people about, you know, I always say is, okay, a lot of people ace and a test. Cool. You got the right answers, but you learn more when you fail it, because now not only do you know the right answers, you know, the wrong answers. And I think you can build off that. So that's sort of the premise of it. But at the same time, it's like, you know, when, when you fail, the, the knowledge that you gain is pretty, pretty impressive. And if you take a look at the failure aspect and you use that as a negative you're going to drill yourself into the ground and so if you can take it and say yeah i tripped up but now i learned what not to do okay uh you know i was getting off the opiates and i screwed up and i relapsed and took more okay fine you learned think about what did i feel like what did it what was the trigger was i stressed was i feeling this okay think about that man i want to get rid of those triggers so Maybe I was around somebody else. I saw do heroin again, if somebody was on heroin. Well, if that was your trigger, now you know the trigger that makes you feel that way and may point you in that direction. So you can start learning what is the thoughts that you had? What were the events, maybe the environment you win? It, it could be anything. I don't know. I mean, everybody is themselves, but you know, their own lives. But if you can think of like, what did I feel when that occurred? I stepped back and I feel like crap that I stepped back and I'm now going through things again. But what did I feel? So instead of looking at it as a failure, say, what did I learn? So I use failure because I really want people to identify, yeah, it was an F up, (laughs) which are, uh, you know, it's a a word we use often, but it's not an F up of who you are. It's 
an experience that you have learned from of what not to do and to step forward. So I, I try to use the fail forward of, you know, picking yourself up and getting getting going. Uh, the other thing is, is not making excuses and rationalizing. We, we love to do it in different generations, you know, seem to do it more and more and more. But um, yeah, your situation, like an accident, whatever, may not be your fault. And being issued these opiates and stuff, not your fault. It's something that's, that's definitely uh, true. But if you slide back or you decide not to get off of it, what did I say? You decide. These are the things that you can own. And you can make the decision to change your life and to get off of these things. Those are the things you control. And that's not anybody else's responsibility. They're yours. So separate what is in your control and what is not. And the reason why you're on them or issue them may not be, but if you want to get off of them and everything, those are in your control. Mm -hmm. So Glenn, as a combat pilot, you're, your mission was to move mountains to get someone home. <laughs> Absolutely. But Absolutely. You, so you used to do rescue operations for a living in the military, but now as a civilian, I see you also rescuing for a living. You're rescuing by helping people fix things, their career, finances, relationships, and addiction. Um, so what are the very first steps in fixing something that people feel is broken? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for mentioning it. Yeah. So as a special operations combat rescue pilot, so, um, you know, when pilots are shot down or SEALs, Green Berets are in trouble, we're the ones that are like, they're 911. But it's interesting, we don't have a 911, but yeah, well, that, that's okay. That's our mission. That's our volunteer. So there's our missions that have gone bad and uh, they're troubling and hard. That's some of the trauma that I have, but I learned from them of how to pick up yourself and move forward. So that's where a lot of the personal stuff comes from. Uh, and then we get into these injuries, we get into these opiates and so forth. And each one of those I feel are, again, I put the term as failures because they failed my career, or they failed my future, or they, they failed my situation and failed what I thought my future was. So the first thing I realized was, no, it didn't, it changed it. And again, I look at, what did I learn from it? So the first thing I step step back to either from, you know, missions or, you know, business or people's divorces or whatever, or, you know, addiction is I first look at it and go, you know, set your goal. There, there's a big goal you want to have. Sure. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's, uh, I want to buy a new house, right? Okay. We'll just use that as an example. Well, if you want to buy a new house, it's a million dollars. You're not going to do it tomorrow. So what is the small objectives to get you there? Uh, so these small victories, you know, back in the war, we're saying, hey, we're going to get to Baghdad. Well, we didn't just go one step. We're there. We had to do these little five miles. We'll take 10 miles. We're going to go this path, this path. And each day we would achieve those and we would achieve that small victory. And what happens when you have a small victory? It's achievable. It's, it's small. And when you achieve it, you have that morale motivation that you're making progress. So take a look at that in your personal life or, or even in this addiction is, okay, I just want to reduce five milligrams. Okay, five milligrams. I got it. All right, awesome. And you can Micro step win. from there. Micro wins, small victories. I like small victories because of my background, but even like in the, uh, the withdrawal side, you know, you go going with, you get these and, and then you're like, oh my God, I feel like crap. I'm going through hell. What's going on? Then instead of small victory of like, I just want to, I just want to get out of bed today. Mm -hmm. That's an achievement. 
I just want to get outside today and, and, and see the sun small victory. I just want to actually make myself breakfast for once small victory for my injury. I couldn't even walk. I just want to get to a walker small victory. Got there. I just want to walk with a cane small victory objective. I got there. I just want to walk. Finally got there, but I couldn't go. Yeah. I just want to walk and boom, be there. It had to be these small steps, just like how we got to Baghdad, just how people want to buy a house. You want to work your, your tail off and achieve and make your savings and everything increase. Or if it's addiction, I just want to, I just want to reduce a small amount at a time, or maybe you're over them. I just want to get out of bed. I just want to get outside. And that small little step and map it out, write it out. People forget it very easily. Map it out and write it out. And when you achieve it, you feel like you achieved something. I don't I care how it. small it is. It doesn't matter how small it is. Because each but of have that motivation. things, they, they, they accumulate. So it's wonderful. They sure do. They mm-hmm. sure do. And so you may zigzag on your way to your big goal. Have a big goal. You may zigzag along the way. That's okay. But these small little achievements really build motivation. They build esteem. They make you feel like you're actually doing something. And sure, you might not make it one day, but hey, you got five objectives that you achieved behind you. So that's the small little steps. And it sounds like common sense, but sometimes when people are in the thick of it, they don't realize it. They're so focused in their situation and their problems that they forget how to plan and get themselves out of it. Yeah. So I, I guess I have to uh, ask you a question, and I don't know if I'm going to want the answer to this, but um, as, as a veteran, I, I think recently there was an article in the Washington um, Post about about uh, what well, we should have veterans be allowed to use marijuana to manage their pain and PTSD. What do you think about that? Um, <clears throat> so it's interesting because, um, you know, I sort of faced that and, um, you know, I, I never tried, I honestly never tried marijuana in high school, nothing. I literally was a clean guy, true. And so some of the things that I noticed was. Um, it's not surprising because you're a combat pilot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, thankfully, and, and uh, maintain that along the way. Um, but afterwards, I, so I was never into the whole marijuana thing, smoking it, don't like the smell, then like, you know, uh, you know, just everything about it. There seems to be a lot of fly by night stuff out here that I, I just want to trust. I think that it's more about a business again. So if it ever helped some people, I think it's almost like uh, any other drug that the industry is getting into making money versus really trying to help people. So you have to be really cautious with it. People who have chronic pain and lots Mm -hmm. of opioids like you have, um, Mm -hmm. adding uh, marijuana just creates two problems and, 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 and does not get people better pain control or less opioids. um, And actually the opposite. I give a whole little lecture on five reasons not to use marijuana for pain, but. um, Yeah. Yeah. I believe chronically and everything. Absolutely. I think you're just really getting another crutch. So on that aspect, I completely agree with you. Anything, you know, like that crime, yeah, I think you're just looking for another crutch. If it wasn't opiates, it could be alcohol that's numbing you. You know, if you're looking at any kind of crutch to numb pain or anything like that, I think that that's just another setup for addiction in a different direction. You're not still dealing, you're still not dealing with the main source of it all. You know, and our veterans deserve the best this country could have. And I feel like, you know, trying another um, experiment and something that we know causes harms preys on that special population that that uh, that kind yeah. of yeah yeah absolutely. But you're writing a book. Um, yeah, I was coming guessing is the title "Failing Forward." Um, 
I, 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 I hope so. I think so. You know, we got, they got to do all the trademark stuff and everything, but yeah, publishing agent and got a great ghostwriter. That's a uh, New York times bestseller, but uh, yeah. So I talk about, you know, missions and rescues that I've done that weren't successful. You know, you hear a lot about some of the special operations and it's the leadership and the rah, rah, rah stuff and not knocking anybody. But at the same time, I was like, man, you know, how many people talk about the failures and things that don't go right? And again, back to the whole failing a test, what do you learn? And you learn a tremendous amount. How do you pick yourself up? So I talk about those stories of uh, missions and rescues that didn't go well. Uh, I don't want people to be depressed after the book. So we talk about some really great rescues and so forth. And I transition to these little lessons and the small victories and other other uh, terms that I have in the book for people to be able to use it. So my, my objective is not a hardcore military book where you're just into war movies and that's the way you're going to watch it. But I think like um, my objective is to have a house mom or house dad who's facing the divorce or being a single parent during COVID, how do I focus on picking myself up and getting forward with my family? And so the whole objective is the mindset and the little steps and to tell stories of exactly how somebody did it. And so if my journey helps somebody out or they can get a little tip or a trick to, to prevent uh, something bad from happening, great. Same thing with like, uh, you know, veteran suicides. I've lost some very good friends to suicide, even just within the last couple of years. And surprising and in shock, very senior officers, in fact. And it's the same thing of what I've seen and what I've endured and how I've seen people stay away from that decision. So, yeah, it encompasses a lot of things and it helps you assimilate what are your problems and, hey, you know, th this might help me out that I never thought of. I don't care if it's the smallest little thread that is a tiny little fabric that you can use in your personal life. If it's a, a, a single parent or if it's somebody in leadership and an executive or it's somebody trying to get off opiates, who, who cares? But if it can help the simplest person out, sure. So yeah, the combat rescue, if this is going to rescue somebody, actually it's them rescuing themselves. And maybe I can give you a little bit of a lesson on the way from being there. So I that's the objective. I can't wait to read it. I really <laughs> want to thank uh, Dr. Jocelyn Young um, because she also is serving in the military as a physician and Great. she inspired our High Truths conversation with you. And I wish Jocelyn, Dr. Young, a much success in her career and very grateful to have physicians like you, Jocelyn, taking care of men and women who protect our country. And uh, Glenn, thank you so much for being a high truth expert. I loved your message of failing forward. I think every person who suffered from addiction can relate to this seemingly hopeless feeling and be inspired by the importance of celebrating those uh, small victories that accumulate. Um, and uh, I can't wait to uh, let us know when your book is out. And sure will. I'll want to be able to read it. Thank you. Absolutely. I like checking the ego at the door and being real. So I appreciate the invitation and can't thank you enough for getting that out and hopefully helping some people out with this message. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. If you would like to sponsor a show, we would be honored and grateful. Please contact us on hightruths.com.
We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us five stars and subscribe so you won't miss any of our informed, packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, and we hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.